0: We're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. You'll find it on page 807 of the Pew Bibles, over into page 808, page 807, over onto page 808. Uh, We're going to read the story of the wise men visiting the Lord Jesus, and Richard is going to come and speak to us from this passage later in our service. So Matthew chapter 2, we're beginning at verse 1. And we're reading down to verse 12. And we remember that this is God's word to us. It's trustworthy, it's living and active, and we can rely upon it. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles again, just to
1: open up uh, Matthew's Gospel, just to have it sitting in front of you, Matthew chapter 2, and as you do so, let me pray for us now. Oh, Father God, we thank you that you speak, that you continue to speak through your word and by your spirit, and we pray, Lord, that tonight we will have open hearts, open minds, ears to hear and to understand, that you will move amongst us, and that which we have not you would give us, and that which we know not you would teach us but that in all things we would come away tonight having known you more and loved you more and filled even more by your spirit. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen become a tale as old as time at this time of year that ministers come along and they find a lovely nativity sitting with the shepherds and the wise men and the donkey and the sheep and everyone sitting around gathered around the baby Jesus and what we tend to do is like my children playing with toys is we come in like an absolute monster and swipe it off the top of whatever and say well wise men weren't there yet you can't put the wise men beside the shepherds because they didn't come for two years And that's exactly what I'm about to do right now is that we've got to this point now where we've got this lovely idyllic view of uh, what the nativity looked like and who was there and when they arrived. And we have to hold that in our heads because even as I was thinking about this, I watched a movie. I don't know if any of you have seen this. It's called The Star. It's all right, like, but it's about, it's about the birth of Jesus. And it's pretty funny if, if you're like me and your sense of humor didn't advance past the age of five. And, and you, I'm watching it and I'm going, yeah, they still have the wise men arriving at the same time. Maybe I should remind ourselves that they waited a long time before they got there. The other thing that's striking is that in the movie, they still had three camels for three wise men. And the odds are that they had a lot more camels and a lot more men because traditionally we would talk about the three gifts And that's where we get the idea of Three Kings. And I've been to the cathedral in Cologne, and I stood there with this massive building up to the sky and walked in, and at the very end, they say that they have the three wise men buried there. I don't know who's done any DNA testing recently or if you'd be allowed to do so, but my guess is that they're German. And buried there and they're not from far east so there's an idea in our heads that has been steeped in history that there's three but there had to be more than three because these guys would have traveled with bodyguards with soldiers with cooks with people carrying their tents as they traveled through the wilderness all sorts of people coming with all sorts of things and then again we we'll stand and we'll sing maybe at some point even though i love the hymn we three kings of orient are And yet, in my head, I'm still remembering the version that was taught as a teenager. We, three kings of Orient, are two in a bus and one in a car. Uh, But it's not that. It's it's the idea that they're not coming as kings. These are wise men. These are magi. That's the word that's used for them. And they're coming and busting into Mary and Joseph's little house that they have by this stage, probably, in Bethlehem. And they crash through the door Not speaking the same language, thrusting gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh into this poor, startled teenage girl's face. And she's probably going, Joseph, Joseph. And something along the lines, whatever the Middle Eastern version is, would you put the kettle on already? Because we're going to need a lot of cups of tea for this. There's a lot of people crashing in through the door. I get the sense that it's a much more chaotic picture than we normally give it even whenever we're considering the night of our Savior's birth and we think the shepherd's turning up is one thing and now suddenly years later probably by the time they're thinking everything's a bit settled suddenly these strangers from the east come in and they bow down in front of a 2 year oldish ish Jesus and worship him I think my little boy Daniel's pretty all right he's nearly two I've not seen anybody bow down and worship him He gets away with blue murder and he gets to do whatever he wants but i've not seen anybody worship the ground that he walks on so these three guys probably more are magi as we said wise men like daniel in the book of daniel under the service of king nebuchadnezzar in babylon they would have been educated and paid always to tell the truth and to give wise counsel and to act like the ancient day equivalent of a cabinet of ministers. Now, you're going to have to imagine a cabinet of ministers being both wise and trustworthy and truthful. That's going to be a lot of hard work for us tonight, but let's imagine for a second that cabinet ministers are wise and faithful and trustworthy. And that's what they are supposed to be. One of the great advantages I found now that I've moved outside of Ballymena town, I mean, I live in Ballygown now, so this is not strictly... Um, compared to Buckna, but when I look up the sky I can actually see stars. Now Belfast skyline and the light coming off Belfast still destroys about 99% of the skyline but I reckon I could pick out the north star pretty well now and the fact that I can now look up and I can see stars shining in the sky is something else and God uses the stars quite a lot in the Bible whenever he's talking about different things. Think about Abraham, Genesis 15, he takes Abraham outside the tent and tells them you'll count the stars Abraham if you can for so shall your descendants be he talks about the morning stars singing in creation to Job he talks about the stars as mere puppets in his handiwork you know the the work of his fingertips he uses the stars to illustrate how grand and big and massive he is how fruitful his promise to Abraham shall be and the glory of the morning stars singing in worship at creation he uses them as illustrations all the time And so as these magi who would have been studying the stars and watching the skies, now don't think of Mystic Meg and don't think of the people who are trying to figure out your star sign or any of that stuff. That wasn't what they were doing. What they were doing was watching the stars and plotting their movement through the sky so that they could understand the world around them. And as they gazed into the stars, God spoke their language. Stars to grab their attention. Some people reckon that this star that appeared in the nighttime sky was a supernova burning up and shooting across the sky and others that Saturn and Jupiter sat together uh, and shone brightly one night. Nobody is entirely sure, for really sure, but um, that last one is probably pretty accurate because you can map the sky back through time and figure out what was going on when. And they reckon that that's exactly what would have happened in and around that time that god can rearrange the stars and the planets so as he desires so that at the right moment the right thing happens at the right time and stars have always been very important throughout history stars have always appeared if you ever remember your first history class and you were taught about 1066 there was a comet burning in the sky before everybody went to war Before Harold Godwinson got an arrow in the eye and before uh, William the Conqueror sailed across the English Channel, there was a star burning in the sky that was an omen. Whenever Caesar died, there was a star burning through the nighttime sky and they believed it was his soul ascending into the heavens. People read things into the stars of great importance in the past and they wanted these signs to be there. They wanted them as a rubber seal and a stamp of approval to show that I'm important And important things are going to happen so God from eternity past had planned a firework display in the sky at nighttime long before anybody had decided to put these two powders together and light them on fire and to see what might happen God put a firework display in the sky and he decided that he would send some angels to go and to sing to some shepherds these wise men would have followed that star for months every night tracking its movements through the blistering desert by day and the freezing desert by night and if these are men of the east the odds are that they're coming from somewhere around Babylon exactly where Daniel would have been and you think how we have Daniel's writings would it not be more likely that these wise men would have had Daniel's writings and they would have sat with the writings of Daniel and Ezekiel in front of them and pored over them to try and understand these strange cryptic scriptures and yet Daniel's writing included a very specific but hard to calculate timing for the birth of the Messiah. 70 weeks of years. Now, if you want to come and talk to me about how 70 weeks of years equals this time, my maths is terribly rusty, so you'll have to bear with me. But in 70 weeks, you can calculate it out from the time of Daniel right to the very time of the birth of Jesus, that it was that precise a dating. And the time matches up. And so these wise men are on their way. And where do they go first? They go to Jerusalem. They go to the place of the king. They go to the palace. And they've got to understand this king has been born. Of course the king's been born in the palace. It's the same today. If we find out that there was another royal baby, we would assume that we would hear about it from Buckingham Palace. We wouldn't assume that we would hear about it from anywhere else we wouldn't all be going to Antremeria Hospital to find out where this baby had been born. We would assume that this baby's been born in one of the grand hospitals of London and published the news at the at the palace. But there's something funny happens whenever these guys get to Herod and they come to him. And it says here in verse two that he says, They ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Notice they already are coming to worship him. This is not something that is a result of coming into contact with the child. They have come with the express purpose of worship, which again tells me they've been reading Daniel and they know someone important is coming. Beyond the birth of a great king, somebody who is worthy of worship. And when Herod, now here, how is he introduced? When Herod, the king heard this he was troubled and all jerusalem with him they are not bringing good news they have brought bad news into jerusalem they are kicking up a stir again remember this isn't three men on three camels each one of them holding their gift until they get to bethlehem these are this is a mighty caravan of travelers from the east And as they traveled, word of this caravan coming would have stirred them up. And they come to the city and now they declare, we're not here to see Herod. We're here to see another king. And suddenly Jerusalem is stirred up. And you can imagine the fear that hits Herod. There's another king. It's sitting in front of King Charles and saying yes your majesty it's all well and good but I'm here to see the other king today. What other king? Do you know how long I've waited to be called the king? What other king? You can imagine the fear within him of what are you talking about? There's nobody else here. You mean it isn't me. You mean there is somebody else and we are just like Herod when we hear something like this. What do you mean there's somebody else? I sit on the throne of my own heart and I make my own decisions and I decide when I'm coming and when I'm going and what I'm doing and when it happens. I am the king of my own heart. We want to sit on the throne and we want to stay there and we'll use whatever we can to get there. He even uses religion. I'll go later and worship the king. He tries to play the religion card, getting God to do whatever we want because we're righteous, or we run away from religious stuff and we shout, God has no claim on me. But in either option, we are declaring that we are the king. Either God will do our bidding because we have done something, or whether we don't want him anywhere near us and we will live our own way. And as we say, Herod must have been livid. His title is King of the Jews. And these foreigners come in and ask, who's been born? And nobody's been born in the palace for a really long time. How could it be that the king of the Jews would be born and nobody would know about it? How is it that the next in line to the throne would be born in the United Kingdom and nobody would know about it? And this is why we're told when Herod heard these things, he was greatly troubled and all Jerusalem with him. There's a rival king and it's not from Herod's line. Herod tended to see everyone around him, you see, as a threat. And he was notorious of getting rid of anybody who ever even daydreamed about taking his throne. This is what Josephus, who is a Jewish historian from the time, said about him. He said, Herod was a man who was cruel to all alike and one who easily gave in to anger and was contemptuous of justice. And yet he was greatly favored by fortune as any man has ever been in that from being a commoner, he was made king. And though encompassed by numerous perils, he managed to escape them all and lived to a very old age. When he grew near to his death, Herod wanted the ruling Jewish men to be brought together to the Hippodrome, which is like an ancient running race track, kind of for chariots. And upon his death, they were all slaughtered. He knew that on his death, the Jewish people would rejoice because he was such a harsh and cruel ruler. And so he wanted them to cry on the day of his death, dragging the leaders of the people into the Hippodrome to be slaughtered so that the people would wail. On the day of his death instead of rejoicing thankfully his orders were ignored because when you're dead you don't get to make orders anymore and josephus said that herod's memory had and i quote nothing human to recommend it this is the kind of guy who you wouldn't want to be spending too much time around he was gifted he got the temple reconstructed he was incredibly skilled but for all of his gifts he was equal parts paranoid always fearing someone was out to get him. He had his wife and three of his sons killed for plotting, he thought. And then you find that as you read on in Matthew 2, that his response as the wise men slip away is to slaughter the children in the slaughter of the innocents. And it's not whenever you know something about Herod that I've told you tonight, it's not beyond the imagination to consider that that is exactly what he would do next. We see in the reaction of Herod with the city of Jerusalem to the wise men, two ways that people can respond to Jesus. Some people perceive Jesus as a threat to be snuffed out and others will greet him as a savior. There is no middle ground given in the gospels. There are many people I know whenever they've come to faith, their family have disowned them, pushed them out, treated them as odd, treated them as strange and and sort of rejected them because they have accepted Jesus there is two responses always to those who come to Jesus. Either we rejoice or we become skeptical and we end up pushing people away. Today, people often think of Jesus as being quite apolitical. They try to say that Jesus is not really interested in politics or anything remotely of the coast. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus has, uh, is gonna tell you exactly how to vote, but I will tell you that Jesus is intensely political and has an awful lot of skin in the game because the gospel is an intensely political thing. It is a rival claim to power that citizens align themselves and pledge themselves to another king to another kingdom so when a new church is planted as it has been in balbriggan north of dublin as it will be i'm sure many of you heard marty McNeely is going off to i'm going to say it wrong but i think it's fahan but everyone tells me it's Fahan. i'm not going to get it right but he's way to plant a church in bunkrana Marty and, Hill, and they're going to go do these things but I tell you that that moment that the church door of whatever form it might look like it is a rival claim to the throne that there will be people who will gather together and declare that there is a greater king on this earth and the local governments should shake in fear that there are those who say our allegiance is to a higher throne and to a greater king and then we come to what I think is the strangest gathering of people. And these are the priests. These are the middlemen in the story. And they come in here. The wise men have done really far getting to Jerusalem. After all, they've been following a star. And I can't imagine that that is anything but difficult. And they get there. But general revelation of the heavens, the earth, creation, it's only going to get you so far. It's only going to get you to a certain point. You're going to need special revelation if you want to know who God is and what he comes to do. They're in the wrong place. And so Herod sends out and he says, right, scribes, come forth, bring your Bibles, bring your books, bring your scrolls. Let's figure out where is it that the king of Jews is to be born. And as I say, the priests absolutely fascinate me in this story. Herod and the wise men get all the attention every single time. But here are these guys sought for to discover where this promised king is to be born. And they search the scriptures and they find the verse for these men who have traveled such a long way, chapter and verse, and then they vanish from the story. There's no mention of them putting two and two together and saying, well, if this is where the Messiah is to be born, we're coming with you, wise men from the east. What I have to imagine happens is that these guys turn around after a job well done, go home and say to their wives, you'll never guess where I was today. I, me, I was in the palace. And the king asked for me. And he asked me a really hard question. Where is the king of the Jews to be born? But you know what? I knew it. And I got my scroll out and I rolled it out in front of him and I swung my finger around and planted it right down and I said, in Bethlehem of Judea, and I'll give you chapter and verse two, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd my people Israel. They gave the right answer. They knew their Bible and they walked away. They went home. They didn't follow the wise men. They didn't go the next leg of the journey. They didn't want to know more. They are apathetic. And sometimes, folk, that can be us, can't it? I mean, I can tell you that I have got my name written on, this is not going to sound really big-headed now for a second, so bear with me. My name is written on more scripture cups for High Kirk B.B. than any other boy. Knew it all, back to front. I could do a sword drill better than anybody. I was quick on the draw, I knew exactly where to go. I could tell you my books of the Bible, my minor prophets maybe were a wee bit rusty, but I could get you through them. And I knew it all, but it's nothing. Being able to give the right answer at the right time <coughs> is nothing if you're not willing to get up and follow. If you're not willing to move past the knowledge and into the relationship if you're not willing to work past what you know and who you can show it in front of, and then to actually buy and down in front of the king himself. These guys, they knew where he was. I mean, look at the verses. We know them well. Bethlehem in the land of Judah, King David's city, once in royal David's city, and the lowliest of all of them, last picked for everything. Their greatest day was the day when David was brought in, and yet they've been picked last ever since. And from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now having its rule reversed as it's picked first once again. Great David's greater son is being born in the city of David. And he's going to be a shepherd king. A shepherd who will not be as Herod was with his tyranny and his heavy taxes and his murder. And God keeps his promise here. It's a fulfillment. It's a promise kept God is faithful and he's trustworthy and he keeps his word. So we've seen the wise men. They see the star. They know that something's happening and they're on their way. We've seen Herod and his reaction is to stamp out whatever hope might be born in David's city. And we've seen the priests who know this stuff. But I'm going to say don't believe this stuff. It's not gone from their head to their heart. And it's shown here. And quite probably, if they're young enough, these guys may have even been part of the Sanhedrin who in the end voted against Jesus that he should be dead. And you think this is a lifetime of rejection of an establishment of people who are constantly saying, I know the right answer, I know the right thing, but I will not do the right thing. So let's come back to the wise men. After their pit stop in Jerusalem, the star moves on ahead of them to call the wise men forward towards Bethlehem. And when they arrive at the place where the child was, and again, this is a child, this is not a baby, most likely toddler age. And so the wise men come to this house and the responses is what I want you to see here. Verse 10 When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What a statement is that? They were the happiest of happy men that he ever did lay your eyes on. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Wouldn't you love to see somebody and be able to say, and you know what, he rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That it's the kind of thing of like, you know, it's not just a smile plastered from one ear to ear, but he might even be dancing a little bit too. I'm not sure, do we dance often in now? But you might dance on the day that the new building is or You might see Stephen dance on the day that the new building is opened. And you might say, now that's a minister who's rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And in all these things, these are the joy that is burning within them. It's the face of the child on Christmas morning as it opens the door and goes, my goodness, look at this. And it's the face of the groom when he stands at the front and he turns around and he sees his bride coming down the aisle, <laughs> rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And then what else does it tell us? Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. As I said at the start, that's not how you greet a normal child, is it? You don't fall down. You might get down on your hunkers and talk to them, but they have fallen fallen down and are worshiping him you only bow down before royalty and these grown men from a foreign nation bow down and worship a little hebrew boy and you only worship god that's the only thing you worship and they are worshiping him as though he is divine because he is divine it's hard to read into what they understood. It's hard to read into how they understood what it was that was going on around them. But this is recorded for us to see that right here at the very early stage of Jesus' lives, the Gentiles, as people like you and me, were coming to worship Jesus. That wise men are coming like the Queen of Sheba did, coming to Solomon. That the Gentiles are coming. That at his own birth, his own people are rejecting him. As John says, for he came to his own and his own people did not know him, did not recognize him, rejected him, that this is already happening from the moment of his birth, that there are three ways to respond to Jesus, is with worship, with rejection and hostility or sheer apathy, but the two of those are actually very much the same. What do they bring? They bring three gifts. Let's talk about them so quickly. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, the gift for a king. Frankincense, the gift for a priest. And myrrh, the gift for the dead. The substance used to anoint the dead. Now, can you only imagine Mary and Joseph opening the gifts? Gold, Joseph. Gold. We are set for life. Joseph. I reckon they spent it all in what had to happen next with their run down to Egypt. Frankincense. That's a very thoughtful gift. Yes, he's a special child. Mirror? Thanks, but no thanks. It's like turning up to somebody's house and saying, congratulations on the newborn. I stopped in at The Undertaker's on the way here, and I've got a lovely coffin. He'll grow into it. Could you imagine what that would be like? It would be a horrific gift. And then I tell you how much this costs. That would have cost $10,000 American today, a little bit of myrrh. Could you imagine what the cost would have been back then? Well, these men from their wealth gave their wealth. And so God warns them to go home by a different road. They go home and they're safe and they've accomplished their mission. The Gentiles are coming and they're coming to worship the Lord let's finish just by reminding ourselves of three ways that we have to respond to this. Herod, who feigns interest in order to protect himself and his own self-interest. The priests, who in their apathy went home rather than worshipping the true king. And the wise men, who with what little they knew stumbled for miles and weeks across the blistering desert to worship a small child and to bring him gifts of great value. There are only three responses to Jesus. In reality, there's only two. Because to reject him outright is the same as to know about him and to walk away and not have him impact your heart. At Christmas time, let's not lose the sense of awe and wonder of what it is that we're talking about. That he who holds the entire universe together was laid in a manger. That he who plotted the stars in the sky that he who put the stars in the sky that would guide the wise men to his own birth had come to us to die for us, to rise for us. And that deserves a greater response than I know the chapter and the verse and a much better response than I want nothing to do with them. But it deserves us to come to buy and to worship. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us, and we thank you, Lord, that so long ago you drew those wise men across half the world that they knew to come to a small house in a little town called Bethlehem, that they came to worship the one true Lord. Lord, we pray that we would be like them, that we would see in them an example of those who give of everything that we have, For him who gave everything that he had for us. Lord, let us respond to them, uh, respond to Christ in this right way to fall down, to rejoice with exceedingly great joy, and to praise you for all that you've done, all that you do, and all that you promise still to do. For you are faithful and you will do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.